Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. Travel continues to be disrupted by COVID-19, and economies and jobs are hanging in the balance, or quite literally, up in the air. Sarah Nelson, the International Chairman of the Association of Flight Attendants, has been on the front lines in a battle to save thousands of jobs. We'll talk about that continuing fight and the future of the airlines, as well as one battle she was a part of winning, the banning of emotional support animals, and then a scam that might surprise you that's still going on. My next guest has had a huge roller coaster ride, as we all have, uh, through the pandemic in terms of who she is and who she represents. She's the international president of the Association of Flight Attendants. We're talking about more than 50,000 working flight attendants. Uh, we always love having her back on the show, especially now because she's now recovering from COVID. I mean, of all the time to get it in the midst of trying to save airlines and save jobs. Sarah Nelson, welcome back. Thank you so much, Peter. Happy to be here. Happy New Year. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy President's Day. All of it. <laughs> yes, and happy staying in the air day. Uh, happy you know, staying in the air and also staying warm. I want to make sure that we're thinking about all the people in Texas who are really in dire straits right now, too. I know. I know. Uh, power. I, we've seen that power. some power has been restored, but not enough yet. Um, it is, it's definitely an emergency. And and, uh, you know, ironically, uh, because of the pandemic and, and, and routes being changed and cities being dropped, uh, the, the airport that's the busiest airport right now is not Atlanta. It was Dallas-Fort Worth. And uh, obviously, they've been hit hard by the snowstorm as well. Uh, but getting hit hard, I mean, it's still going on because, you know, you had the one stimulus package for the airlines. Uh, that then expired. There were, there were many furloughs. Uh, then there's supposedly another. Uh, some some airlines took loans. Other airlines mortgaged their frequent flyer programs. Others took the the uh, the other additional money coming from Congress. But where does that put you guys? Because I would assume that if I was a working flight attendant right now, I still don't have any guarantee that I'm going to have a job in six months. 
Yeah, so Peter, uh, back in March, this happened so fast. The pandemic and the effects of it came on so fast that airline demand dropped 97% overnight. And airlines run on a 10% margin. So even though it's a heavy cash business and a lot of money pumping through there, when you suddenly cut off all of uh, that all of that demand and all that travel and the refunds are issued, all of the sudden, all of the airlines were in jeopardy of not being able to meet payroll, some of them within a couple of weeks and others uh, within a few months. So when we got the payroll support program and the loan program in the CARES Act, that gave the airlines the opportunity to shore up the business. So I'll talk about the, the payroll support separately, but Airlines went out and um, were able to say we've got this government backing. They got additional uh, support, as you were as you were saying, and they loaded up on cash. But really, what that is is debt. So the more debt that they take on, the longer it's going to take to recover from that. Right. Separately, yeah. though, what we wanted to do was make sure that this package was focused on the workers because we've been through crises before. And so we got something that was historic and something that's modeled on what we've seen in Europe that has worked very well, except that it's even more important to keep people in their jobs in the United States because we're also covered with health care that way. So our payroll support program actually funneled that money through the payroll system to the workers, required the airlines to keep us all on the job. Uh, no cuts to hourly rates, and we capped executive compensation and and banned stock buybacks for two years even beyond the end of the release. So this was truly on its head from what we're used to in corporate bailouts and really a workers' first package that worked through September 30th, as you said. When that expired, we saw mass furloughs, and we also saw a displacement of workers across the system. Some, just to keep their jobs, had to move states away. So it was very, very disruptive. A lot of people going without a paycheck. And what that means is they weren't paying their rent or their payroll bill and contributing back into their communities. They weren't paying their taxes, so it hurt that state and local tax base. And we don't think about this uh, right now because we're so focused on the immediate urgency of the situation. But when you've got people out of work and not getting a paycheck, we're not contributing into Social Security. We're not continuing pension payments or 401k contributions. That's going to have a long-term effect. So getting that payroll support program back in place uh, by the end of December, having that retroactive to December 1st, restoring everyone to their jobs, getting them trained up again, and now having this as part of the relief plan that that Biden's pushing forward and the Democrats are pushing forward. We'll have that relief through September uh, 2021. And from there, we're going to be a little bit smaller industry, but some people are deciding to take early retirements. And uh, I think actually this is going to get us through to the point where we've got a little more demand, uh, a little fewer staff, and hopefully we won't see any furloughs by September when that uh, support ends. We're talking with Sarah Nelson, the international president of the Association of Flight Attendants. You know, Sarah, I go back to 9-11. We learned a lesson there very quickly about capitalization and funding of airlines because when the airlines were shut down for five days across the board, nobody was flying anywhere after that. Some of them were so poorly capitalized, they were on the brink of extinction right then and there. That's right. We went through a series of bankruptcies and... um I, I had the extreme pleasure, <laughs> I say that very sarcastically, uh, of having a front row seat to the United Airlines bankruptcy, which was the longest airline bankruptcy in history, 38 months long. 
and uh, we lost our pensions. We had a 30 to 40% cut in pay. Uh, we gave all kinds of uh, productivity enhancements to the airlines. Our medical benefits were cut, retiree medical benefits cut. And um, that ultimately led to all the mergers and all the changes that consumers don't like either. Um, so, you know, bankruptcy is, is, is not a good tool for working people or for consumers. And so it was very important to keep our economy going, keeping, keep everything intact in the middle of this, uh, in the middle of this major disruption, because this was not uh, the fault of anyone in the airlines or any other industry or any of those small restaurants and small businesses that have been so hurt. And the more that we can shore this up and get people through this time and restart our economy with things intact, the better off we're going to be. You know, you take a look at the average unemployment in the travel industry, it's about 19%. But in certain segments of the travel industry, it's as, many, as much as 51%. And many of those jobs are not coming back. I saw a story recently that, I mean, really threw me. It said that 50% of all pilots may never fly again. Well, that's, that, that could be true, and it's important to recognize that that can also be aging out. Don't forget that there, there's, there's a point at which uh, pilots are no longer eligible to fly commercial uh, for commercial airlines. So, um, you know, there's going to be fewer numbers, um, and hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll get bounced back here and the demand will come back. The truth is that you know, the more that people are on Zoom calls right now, the more we hear that they want to get connected personally. People want to get back to um, being together. And what did we see after the Spanish flu? We saw the Roaring Twenties. So I, I'm sure that demand is going to come back, but we've got to make sure that we're in place and able to meet that demand. And of course, along with demand has to become, you know, has to come along with responsible behavior. Uh, we had a situation that started right beginning of the pandemic. It's still with us now. You know, the anti-maskers, uh, the people who yep. just refused to, 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 to travel responsibly. Uh, it, it was tough for you guys because it put you in the position of being sky cops, which I know you didn't want to be in. Uh, and then in the new administration, uh, one of the very first executive orders that President Biden signed was to direct the appropriate agencies to enact rules basically making it a federal offense to refuse to wear a mask on public transportation. Yeah, so look, this immediately made our workplace safer, not only for the um, health, uh, cutting down on the risk of the spread of the virus, because this is the best way to contain that and stop that spread, but also we were running into major conflict in our workplace because people were led to believe that this was a political decision rather than a, a public health necessity. And so having this order from the president of the United States and then having that translate very quickly into actionable items like TSA being able to enforce this in the airports with actual fines that they can give people for not wearing the masks and backing up the flight attendants on the air on the airplanes themselves, uh, Administrator Dixon, FAA Administrator Dixon coming out and saying, listen, if you're interfering with the crew members um, and you're not complying with the instructions that they're giving them, giving you to keep everyone safe, you can face up to $35,000 in fines and even jail time. Having that kind of backing from the federal government makes all the difference. And uh, flight attendants are very grateful that, for that, both for our health and safety, um, but also for just a, a, a smoother time at work. One of my big pet peeves... And I'm sure Sarah might share this. 
uh, has been the ESAs, uh, the Emotional Support Animals. Uh, there wasn't a flight I was on for more than seven or eight years in which at least one flight attendant didn't come up to me and say, what are we going to do about this? Um, about people basically you know, claiming that they had to have Fluffy or Fido. And by the way, that might not have been a dog or a cat. It could be something else too. Uh, fly <laughs> with them on the plane. Um, and or they could snap, you know, they had, to, they had to have that emotional support. We're not talking about service animals that are, you know, specifically trained to help with a disability in a particular area. We're just talking about pets. And, uh, and it was crazy because not only was it inconveniencing and disturbing passengers, there were flight attendants getting, getting attacked and getting bitten. Right, Sarah? That's exactly right. We had essentially Noah's Ark on our airplanes and overnight an explosion of these emotional support animals. And, and, and it was really a fraudulent system. There were websites out there that would tell people how they could kind of scam the system and fly with their pets. And we had, we at the end of the day, when we finally got this changed, we had such a coalition. We had, of course, veterans with us and the disability community because they were being discriminated against because people thought that anyone with an animal in the airport was scamming the system. Um, but we also had animal rights groups with us because they recognized that people were putting these animals into a, a uh, an environment that they weren't used to. And, and that was making some of the animals become aggressive when they're not normally. And that actually put those animals in jeopardy as well as they were um, becoming violent against crew or other passengers or other animals on the plane. Uh, so, yeah. so everyone who was a, a conscientious human being uh, was uh, came to the table on this issue. And it's the one thing that we got done in the last four years uh, because there was so much consensus around it and everybody just wanted the fraud to stop. I mean, and you call it the fraud, and I think that's an appropriate uh, description because the scam was so crazy that you could go online for $150, fill out a form, and some psychologist you never met before would say, oh, yeah, Sarah needs her miniature donkey on the plane, or, you know, she, she'll have a problem, and you'd get certified, you'd take the donkey, I'm not making this yeah. up, you know, and get it, get it the little red vest. <laughs> And, of course, the donkey did not have a seat on the plane. The donkey essentially got to sit wherever the donkey wanted. Whoops. Um, And, of course, the the infamous story of the pig on the U.S. airplane going from Philadelphia (laughs) to Seattle, which was not a pretty picture, and I won't bore you with all the details, but let's put it this way. Way before the pandemic, they needed hazmat teams when that plane landed. Um, But the bottom line is what we did on CBS to prove the point of how crazy this was there are two things that were going on. One, the actual scam of getting the animal certified. And two, uh, there was no regulation or rule as to how many emotional support animals any one passenger could take on the plane. Talk about Noah's Ark, right? So what, we did at, so what we did at CBS is we went to a small farm in, in Pennsylvania and we rented a pig. And, and we went online. We got it certified. We got its little red vest. And, of course, you know what the title of the segment was, Sarah, When Pigs Fly. And, <laughs> and it did. Um, and so we were hearing so many stories of, of you know, uh, miniature uh, cows and horses. And st- you know how big a standard poodle is? Oh, my God. So it was, it was getting crazy. It finally got over the top when somebody tried to bring a peacock on the plane and a ferret. That's right. And that's, when, and that's I think, when United Airlines put their foot down on that. 
But still, there was no effective rule from the Department of Transportation. And you're right. It took years. And finally, basically, in the last couple of months of the Trump administration, the DOT actually issued the rule. And it basically defines the only animal that can go on a plane is a truly dedicated and specially trained service animal uh, that has to be documented. And uh, it leaves it up to the individual airlines as to what other animals they want to carry. And Sarah, you and I know the minute they left it up to the airlines, they said, bye bye no more of these DSAs, <laughs> right? Yes. Uh, the airlines had had to deal with so many situations, and uh, you referenced it. I mean, animals that were urinating and defecating in the, in the cabin and um, other real very serious safety risks and uh, crew members getting bitten, other passengers getting bitten that, that airlines had absolutely had enough. Um, and there was no warning for this. People could just show up at the plane and declare that they needed this for emotional support, carry a letter from their doctor. You know, the other thing, Peter, that I hadn't really considered, I, I happened to be in for an annual exam with my regular physician. And she said to me, she said, oh, everyone's passing around this story today. We're all so happy as doctors that no one's going to be coming to us anymore and claiming that they need us to sign a letter that they can <laughs> hand to the airlines because they knew that their their patients were, were just faking this, but they couldn't really question them. So the doctors were happy, too. Um, everyone was really overjoyed when, when this rule went into effect, and the airlines grabbed onto it right away and, and took uh, really the strictest form of policy that they could with what DOT yeah. issued. And that's, exactly. and that's because it's just been a disaster out there. Yeah. It's a crazy story. We just talked about the fact that there was no real rule about what really constituted an emotional support animal or how many you could bring on the plane. There's also no real rule at the airlines for what constitutes a disability. And as a result, any passenger going to the airport can call the airline and request wheelchair assistance. And for people who truly have a mobility issue, I get it. They deserve it, and they should get it. But here's what's been going on lately. And in fact, I'll, I'll amend that. It hasn't been going on lately. It's been going on for years. It's gotten worse lately. How many times have you landed at an airport, and as you walk off the plane down that jetway, you see like 30 people standing with wheelchairs waiting for passengers? That never used to be the case. Maybe one or two, maybe three, 30. Here's what happens. If you ask for wheelchair assistance, they meet you at the curb. They bring you to the counter. You don't have to stand in line. You check in first. They take you through security first. You get to the gate first and you board first. And then when the plane lands, here's the funny part. Ha ha. They call them miracle flights. Why do they call them miracle flights? Because the minute the plane lands, you not only can walk, you can run. And all those people waiting for wheelchairs, maybe 40% of the passengers will take the wheelchair. The rest of them are racing the baggage claim. And there's still no rule. There's still no law about this. And you see it all the time, right, Sarah? Yes. Well, there are people who still need assistance. So this is sort of, of like course. the emotional support issue. Um, it's it's terrible to think that someone's scamming. But as flight attendants, boy, it used to make me feel pretty good when we'd have all these people come on with wheelchairs and all of a sudden only one person out of the 30 who came to the door needs it when they're getting off. I thought, oh, I've become a healer. I'm going <laughs> to, you know, put this on my resume. 
Um, so, <laughs> yeah, Miracle Flights is exactly right, but uh, it, we see it all the time. And, and oftentimes it happens more often on some routes than others. And it typically happens when we're going to a vacation destination. This is not the business traveler that we see doing this, but it's often those vacation flights where we see that most often. In fact, there's one route that I know in particular that every flight attendant that I know who's based on the East Coast basically goes, oh, no. And that's <laughs> the route, the, the most abusive route on the wheelchairs is LaGuardia to West Palm Beach. That's the one. That's the one that's where, the one. <laughs> oh, my God. It's it's scary. It's really scary. It's like, you know, they, they basically hobble onto the plane, and when the plane lands, they knock people over running off the plane. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the word is out in the communities outside LaGuardia and in West Palm Beach, too. And so they've shared this with each other. And uh, it's, it's, you know, it's a way of migrating. Um, and and uh, I guess, I guess there's no real way, and tell me if you disagree, but there's no real way to adequately enforce this rule without having medical personnel doing physical examinations at the gate. And so I guess the only way to fix it is, uh, for lack of a better term, a little bit of flight shaming. Yes, which um, you are helping with right now. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> and you did when you <laughs> told the story that we talked about a couple of years ago. So it's important to keep bringing this up and, you know... The, the truth is that aviation only works when everybody follows the rules and we come to the airplane with the spirit that we're all in this together. And if somebody's getting special treatment, uh, there are certain people who actually need that. But, you know, when when uh, you're, you're taking something that you're not truly due, you're taking away from everybody else, and you're also maybe delaying the flight. You know, the flight attendants who have to conduct that boarding with those wheelchairs, that boarding is longer. That makes everybody else have to wait in the gate area, and it makes it less convenient for everyone. And so there's there's a lot of people that, you know, are having a harder time. And sometimes it's so bad that it'll even delay a flight getting off on time. Um, so, yeah, we don't need people uh, shirking their own responsibilities and, and trying to game the system. If We really need everybody just uh, doing their part so that we can get from point A to point B safely and without incident. The bottom line is, if you need a wheelchair, please use it. That's what it's there for. And if you don't, Sarah and I will be looking at you very strangely. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Otherwise, you better tell a big story about how I was a major healer. <laughs> My thanks to Sarah. It used to be a gray and murky world, but now, in the wake of COVID-19 and border restrictions, it's out in the open. The growing number of people seeking and then getting second passports. Is it worth it? Is it even legal? Journalist Chris Elliott has the report. I, you know, one of the subjects I've talked about recently, because I've been approached uh, in, in this area, and it seems to be a new cottage industry among some very determined Americans, triggered probably... Uh, by the pandemic and their desire to be able to travel more freely and having a U.S. passport maybe not be the best way to do it, is this sort of new quest for a second passport. And uh, can you get one? Many people can. You can get it through uh, marriage. You can get it through uh, maybe heredity of family or heritage. Uh, you can you can actually put down some serious money and buy one. Uh, one of the guys who's been track, tracking that for a long time, my good pal, Washington Post columnist and consumer advocate, Mr. Christopher Elliott. Hey, Christopher. Hey, Peter. How are you? Okay. So I know, I'll, I'll give you the intro from me, 
my wife is Turkish, and I know that in one year, uh, I will qualify for a Turkish passport. I don't have to renounce my U.S. citizenship. I don't give up my U.S. passport. I just get an additional passport. And you know what? Of course I'm going to get it uh, because I'm one of those guys who believes you always want to keep your options open. And for all sorts of reasons, some obvious, some not so obvious, I'd love to have a second passport. But there are a lot of people out there today that you've been tracking who want to get a passport for other reasons that are much more immediate, like to be able to travel to, let's say, the European Union. Yeah, that's right. And surprisingly, uh, a lot of Americans, because they have uh, some heritage, European heritage, they they can go back a generation or two, establish that maybe grandma came from Italy, and apply for an Italian passport and get one. It's a little bit of a process, but um, you know sometimes it takes a year or so. But if you can get it, you've got an EU passport. You can live and work in the EU. And the thing is this, you know, it's it's the luck of the Irish. If you get an Irish passport, that gives you basically carte blanche in 27 European Union countries. That's exactly right. Yep. Uh, you know, any EU passport will do it. And you can live in any of the 27 EU countries and you can work there. You can get a job. Sometimes you can take advantage of the other benefits like retirement and health care and education. It is a pretty good deal. And then, of course, there are the other passports that do require some sort of a financial commitment. Uh, St. Lucia, for example, you know, if you invest in real estate there and uh, you don't necessarily have to be a resident, but you do have to live there a certain amount of time and own some property, you can get a passport that way. And that gives you, the last time I counted, about visa, like a visa-free entry into about 120 countries. It's a passport that's considered very powerful because it doesn't require... Uh, somebody getting an additional visa and going through that process. And then the one which I think you've reported on is the one in Portugal. Yeah, a lot of people like Portugal. Uh, you're talking about something called the golden visa. And yeah. you, if you spend, it's somewhere between 250 and 500,000 euros. It, and the reason that it depends is sometimes if you're investing in real estate or distressed real estate, fixing it up, you might be able to get uh, to get a passport for less. But, you know, if you've got the money, you can apply for one of these golden visas, get them and get a passport in, in that way. Um, so there's just a ton of different uh, ways of getting a second passport or even a third passport. I talked to someone who had four passports even. Wow. Now, actually, to tell you the truth, I carry two and I do it legally. They're both U.S. passports. And the reason why I carry them is because I can easily make the claim, which is recognized by the U.S. State Department, that I'm going between different countries that don't necessarily like each other um, and uh, because they would not recognize the stamp of another country where, in which they're in a technical state of war. Uh, and so I get the, t- the second passport, and that becomes hugely helpful to me because if I have to give one of my passports away t- temporarily to get a visa to go to another country... Uh, I can use the second passport with no problem whatsoever. And I can even, you know, qualify for global entry for both passports under the same name. People get really weird with passports. You know, if you're on a riverboat cruise, they make you give up your passport when you're boarding. When you're at a, staying at a hotel in Europe, sometimes they do the same thing, too. Always helps to have that second passport. I agree. And speaking, you just mentioned river cruising, so you gave me the perfect segue here to talk about an industry that has been hit hard, Uh, They're not currently operating, at least U.S.-based cruise lines. Uh, Their sailing dates keep getting pushed back. Uh, The CDC has not yet given them all the instructions necessary to get up to speed. Uh, And, you know, we had a no-sail order that that expired last October. And when when the CDC lifted it, 
they gave the cruise lines about 75 different things they had to perform to before the CDC would let them cruise again, one of which, of course, was changing uh, boarding procedures, dining procedures, floor plans, ventilation systems, uh, isolated areas where they could quarantine people in case they tested positive. Uh, Their whole shore excursion protocols had to be changed. And, of course, they had to do test cruises either for crew only or for test passengers. And uh, you and I both saw that story when Royal Caribbean came out and said, we're looking for volunteers to take a free cruise on us to to perform some of those tests. They had 100,000 applicants. Now, has that test cruise happened yet? It has not. Everybody thought it was going to happen late January or this month or next. No, it hasn't. Um, and they may not even have those till May. So what does your crystal ball tell you as to when U.S.-based cruise lines will actually sail again with a reasonably uh, you know, structured itinerary? Well, I have to say you can already book a, uh, a riverboat cruise here in the States, but it's just not the same. It's not what people think about. They think about the big ships you know, going to these exotic ports of call in the Caribbean. That's probably not going to happen until late spring, but that's also, as you mentioned, not for the uh, faint of heart or for any at-risk group of people. Uh, I do think that we'll see more of a return to normal over the summer, but it's not going to really look normal, normal until probably the end of the year. That would be my, you know, crystal ball thing. And part of my crystal balling, Chris, is that uh, we've already seen it start to happen with U.S.-based riverboat cruises in the Mississippi one of the cruise lines in Europe has already done it. They basically come out with public statements saying, if you want to cruise with us, you're going to have to show us proof of a vaccination. Uh, Norwegian Cruise Lines has already announced that every one of their crew members, it will be mandatory to be vaccinated. I have to suspect that in a very short period of time, you'll see additional rules that no one can book a cruise unless they show proof of vaccination. Yeah, you already have one cruise line in the U.K. that is that they won't be able to accept reservations from anyone unless they're vaccinated. I would expect that to happen for U.S.-based cruises, too. I mean, it still remains to be seen what these, how the major cruise lines are going to implement the CDC requirements. They've been doing kind of this two-step where they announce their precautions or their, you know, what, what they're going to do, and then they take them back and say, no, we didn't mean it, we're going to do it. This is what, actually what we're going to do. But we do know that they're going to involve um, a negative COVID test. We know they're going to involve a uh, you know mask wearing required indoors and outdoors around when you're around people. So you can't just go to the pool without a mask on. Frequent temperature checks and very very rigorous enforcement. So if you don't fall in line, you'll probably be confined to quarters and and ejected at the next port. <laughs> wow. Well, you know when you think about it. There's somewhat of a, of a myth that once you get vaccinated, you're suddenly liberated, and you're not. Uh, once you're vaccinated, you're still going to have to wear a mask. We are all probably going to still be wearing masks for the next year, and you're going to get tested again. The hope is that we're going to develop the technology to allow rapid response, reliable testing, where you'll know in 45 seconds or less whether you're positive or negative, which will be a great, you know, great help to everybody, plus you know, th- there'll be the infrastructure in place to take care of you should you test positive without basically jeopardizing the entire rest of the cruise. Yeah, I think people feel that having a vaccine is going to be a silver bullet. The moment they get that second shot, that they'll be able to rip the mask off and go travel. I was talking to my aunt the other day. She told me, you know, I'm ready to go as soon as I've had that second shot. And I 
told her, you know, Aunt Dee Dee, no, unfortunately, it's not going to work that way. You still have to wear a mask. You still have to practice social distancing. All the rules still will apply to you. My thanks to Chris. You know, when it comes to travel, few things are as confusing as insurance. Hannah Sampson, travel reporter at the Washington Post, tries to read between the fine print, as well as an update on getting to the 49th and 50th states, Alaska. One of the biggest pet peeves that's uh, been basically expressed by our listeners when it comes to travel is insurance. How many of you actually signed up for it last year with all the best of intentions? You may have done it online. In fact, if you did it online, you know all too well that you couldn't even complete your travel transaction unless you opted in or out of it. Um, And uh, you thought you were doing the right thing, and then you found out that on page 95 of the insurance company website was a small little sentence that said, oh, by the way, should you actually find this line on page 95, we don't cover for pandemics. A lot of people angry about that. It's still a, a, a negative touch point out there in the travel industry. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the latest in Hawaii. Uh, Hawaii says it's open to tourists. Uh, tourists simply want to, you know, travelers certainly want to go to Hawaii, but has it gotten any less complicated in terms of what each island wants, says it needs, or wants to enforce? And then, of course, last but not least, the decision by the Canadian government. We talked about this recently. We need to talk about it again to not reopen their ports uh, till February of 2022 effectively canceling for the second year in a row the summer season of cruising in Alaska. So who best to talk about that? We might even throw a little Disney in there while, we, while we're before we're finished. Hannah Sampson, the travel travel reporter at the Washington Post. How are you? I'm great. How are you, Peter? Okay, so you're doing the smart thing in the winter. You're down in Florida, but I still forgive you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I won't brag. <laughs> no, don't brag. But let's start with with topic A here, which is travel insurance. Uh, you know, people want to do the right thing. They want to be protected. Most of them found out the hard way that when their flight got canceled or their safari got postponed or their cruise got got basically delayed, that they weren't covered, right? Right. And this was especially about a year ago at this time when we were all starting to realize that this new coronavirus was going to be disruptive. Um, people were trying to think, should I cancel? Uh, at least I bought travel insurance, uh, only to find out, like you said, pandemic was not included because insurance doesn't like things that you know about ahead of time. And once something becomes a pandemic, it's been out there and it's it's known about. So um, COVID was, yeah, it was, it was one of those excluded items. Uh, the insurance providers had to change their tune, change their kind of policies or change what they cover over the next couple of months because it was just so pervasive um, that they they realized they couldn't keep dodging COVID. Uh, but there was definitely uh, a time when they didn't. And that was a real shock to people who, you know, obviously <laughs> don't have time when they're finishing their, uh, their booking to look through the nuances of the travel insurance policy that's in front of them. Well, you know, what I've always said, Hannah, is that you don't necessarily have to buy the insurance from the travel provider themselves. You can opt out of it online and call a travel agent or a travel advisor, get their advice, let them walk you through the policy provisions so that you know not only what you're covered for, but most importantly, what you're not. And that's a great point. Everyone who I've talked to about this subject has said um, this is not a very simple like 
check the box kind of purchase and you're done. This is the kind of thing where you actually, you know, in the year 2020 or 2021, you should really pick up a phone and talk to somebody. So you're walked through all of the details and not, you know, surprised when things have gone wrong and and you're not covered. So it it really is, um, it's beyond just buying the policy. It requires a lot of due diligence, which can frankly be kind of boring, but if you, you know, if it works out in the end, then totally worth the effort. I mean, God forbid you you should actually have a conversation with another human being. What a breakthrough. <laughs> um, <laughs> but seriously, I mean, we, we're, yeah. we're culturally disinclined to have it most of the time. You know, just we like to text now, and uh, and that is to our detriment in some cases. Well, happy to have the conversation with Hannah Sampson from The Washington Post. Let's shift gears for a minute. You know, when Hawaii finally reopened, it was a little rocky, a little bumpy, People didn't really know what the rules were. They were changing all the time. Each island wanted to either opt in or opt out. Has it settled down? You know, a a bit. Um, There's still a lot of difference. Uh, At least Kauai, for example, is much more strict than other islands. Um, So if you're going there, there's there's a pre-test, but then there's also a post-test, and then there's a and then there's a resort bubble program where you can wait for the results of your second test in the luxury of whatever, however many acres are in this resort that you can, you know, travel freely around, but, um, but you can't go off that property. So it it really is still pretty complicated. Someone described it to me as like, you need a PhD in the safe travels program in order to really know what you're doing. And one of the, one of the issues is that in order to get the test that you need, to go to Hawaii and avoid a quarantine, uh, it has to be a state-approved partner. Those aren't always easily available wherever the person is coming from. So then there's a mail order uh, uh, alternative, but maybe you don't know that until it's too late. So it really is uh, full of potential pitfalls um, that if you do your research or you're working with a travel agent who knows the ins and outs, you should be fine. You should be able to navigate it and the good news is you don't have to quarantine for two weeks when you get there anymore, which is what the original rules were. Um, but it is still it is still very complicated. There are efforts to make it less complicated, but uh, those are it's no guarantee that those will actually pan out. All right, Hannah. Now let's shift gears. We'll go a little bit uh, east of Hawaii and a little north to uh, to Alaska. Uh, the Canadian government did two things recently. One is that they basically stopped all Canadian passenger flights uh, from Canada to Mexico and the Caribbean. And they've done that through April 30th, which, of course, is a huge hit on the economies down there for all the Canadian snowbirds that would normally be coming down at this time of year. And at the time they did that, there was still a decision date of February 21st to determine whether or not they're going to reopen Canadian ports. Well, they didn't wait for for February 21st. Almost immediately after the airline decision, they announced that they were going to keep the ports closed for another year through February of 2022, which for the second year in a row effectively ended the summer Alaska cruise season. That's got to be a huge hit uh, along the entire Canadian coast, not to mention our 49th state. Oh, yeah. Um, folks in Alaska are just kind of reeling right now from this news. I think they were they were not expecting a full 
summer cruise season, they were they were figuring things would probably get started a little late, but maybe they could eke out like a couple or a few months of business. Um, and then this came out of, I mean, they said this almost came out of nowhere to them uh, that it was a full year of a cruise ban. Um, so, yeah, I mean, people are just kind of a little bit in shock and um, a lot trying to figure out how they're going to manage for the next, you know, another year without business, more than a year from now before cruise ships will come back in 2022. <laughs> Knock on wood, if they do come back in 2022. Um, but, yeah, huge, like huge hit especially for those cities and communities in, in the Southeast where, you know, 90% of their visitors might come by cruise ships, maybe more, 95%. Yeah, and it's a tourism-based economy. I guess the question that has to be asked, and it may be a, a, a sort of like a, a, a futile question, and that is, is it time to readdress that 1939 piece of legislation called the Jones Act? Because it was the Jones Act, that, that basically forced cruise ships to stop in Canada in the first place. Um, and what the Act says is that no cruise line, no ship, by the way, cargo ship or passenger ship not registered in the United States can sail between two U.S. ports without stopping in a foreign port first. It was originally designed to protect the merchant marine in the United States and ended up destroying it. But the point is it's still on the books. So if you want to go from, you know, Los Angeles to... Um, to Alaska, you got to stop in Canada first, uh, and and the same thing. If it, I remember every year, the, the you know the QE two and now the Queen Mary two on their annual world cruise would would come into Los Angeles, and their next stop was Hawaii. Oh no, it wasn't. Their next stop was Ensenada <laughs> in Mexico to make a mm-hmm. technical stop so they could perform under the provisions of the Jones Act. It seems a little ludicrous now in the year twenty twenty one. Right. And, and I believe this is where the Passenger Vessel Services Act come into. There are these two cabotage rules, and what a terrible word is cabotage. But anyway, yes, uh, and, and lawmakers from Alaska, as well as the cruise lines, are, are raising point um, vociferously and saying, you know, maybe they can pursue a waiver of the act um, so that they don't have to rely on Canada this year. We've been talking to Hannah Sampson uh, from the Washington Post. All sorts of interesting developments um, in uh, Hawaii, in Alaska, in the travel insurance business. And lately, you know, we have to deal with it because so many people want to know about it. They all want to go. It's it's the theme parks. It's 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 Disneyland. It's Disney World. It's, it's uh, Universal Studios and on and on and on. Uh, we know how they tried to pivot and adjust in 2020, not necessarily, you know, well. Now we're a year later, um, and we're looking at their earnings, and we're looking at how they're trying to adjust and pivot this year. Hannah, what, is, uh, what do the numbers tell you? So uh, it's pretty bleak. Um, the, I believe that they had a, a $2.6 billion hit to their parks business um, over the just in the last quarter. Um, in the current quarter, anyway, two point six dollar billion dollar hit in the quarter is uh, is pretty significant. Obviously, Disneyland is still closed, um, so they're doing vaccinations in the parking lot there in California, but nobody's riding rides. And um, in Florida, you know, they're open, but they're operating at thirty five percent, so obviously nowhere near what they would want to be doing. And um, you know, they said they don't they don't see California opening at least fully this quarter. 
And they think that masking and social distancing at the parks that are open will last at least through the end of the year. They're excited about a vaccine, um, about vaccinations, and think that could be a game changer once more people are vaccinated. But for now, it's still pretty, pretty rough for them. You know, when you take a look at uh, destinations and parks and attractions uh, that are by design meant for large social gatherings and shared experience, um, even if you do go there now uh, with reduced capacity, it can't be the same experience. I mean, I can't think of anything less desirable. I, yeah, I can. I, I, I take it back. I can think of a lot of things less desirable. But as an example, you know, I don't want to take the Pirates of the Caribbean ride by myself on my own boat by myself. Um, I don't, oh, wanna... I don't think you would. <laughs> but I think, do you want to share it with people in the next row six feet apart? I don't know if you want to do that either at this point. Well, that's that's my point. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I love that when last year when we were in the midst of all this, uh, amusement parks in, in Japan were saying you can go on the roller coaster, but you only have to go by yourself and you can't scream. Right. Scream inside, your, scream inside your heart, it, they said. <laughs> Remember that? Scream inside your heart. Wow. It was great. Um, and, you know, we're, we're dealing this year, of course, it's not just the theme park issue. Um, and by the way, if you're going to put me on a roller coaster, I better be sitting next to someone because I'm going to be digging my nails into their skin. I mean, <laughs> it's I don't want to do that by myself. I'm sorry. I'm a wimp. But, <clears throat> but you know, we take this, this park adventure to another extension, and that is the postponed Olympics, the Summer Olympics that are supposed to be this summer in Japan. And yet... Mm-hmm. There's an 85% public opinion thumbs down on it from the Japanese population saying they don't want it. Hmm. And, you know, they, they held out for a long time in 2020. And I, I know that everybody's just kind of riveted by the question, will they, will they go through with it this year? Or, you know, late in the game, will they say, no, we can't do it? I don't know. It, it, it seems like, you know, the, the thing that a host city likes to get is, is all of these visitors and people coming in and spurring the economy. And, and I don't see how that happens um, in any normal way this year, even if they do go forward with it. Well, so, you know, if, big if, question. If, if, you, if you look at it historically, Hanna, every four years, countries bid for the Olympics and they all think it's going to do the same thing for them. It's going to, you know, it's going to basically transform their economy. They're going to huge amounts of money. It's an event that lasts maybe two and a half weeks and certain short-term things happen. You know, cities get to clean up their act. Uh, maybe they have new cabs on the streets. Uh, uh, maybe some new hotels get built. But from an economic impact point of view, cities never make money from the Olympics. I can't, very expensive. I, it seems very expensive to host the Olympics. Yeah. So, so, and that's in a and that's in a good year. Now go to a <laughs> year like this where international long haul travel is basically dormant. You're having it in Japan. The people don't even want it there. Um, and if they have to do limited capacity, not only do they not benefit from it, it's a negative impact that they may not be able to recover from. Yeah, it's it's hard to see how it could be a success story in in any scenario at this point. So, you know, I, and then you, then you get into another area that they've never had to address, and that is, do they postpone it another year, um, which which brings it two years late? which means the next Olympics is only two years after that. This is all uncharted territory, and, and obviously we'll be watching this space to figure yeah. it out, but it's it's not a pretty picture. 
No. I mean, and then you've got the, you know, these poor athletes who, you know, were ready a year ago to compete. And if you stretch that forward another year, like, what does that mean for their lives? It's right. It, it's, and, then, it's a and, and, and then just for just an economic point of view, look at Tampa for the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't get any return. It'll be interesting to see if the NFL will, re- will reward them with another venue in Tampa or another another Super Bowl earlier than expected just to try to make up for the loss. My thanks to Hannah Sampson, to Chris Elliott, and to Sarah Nelson. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, and it just keeps coming, just log on to petergreenberg.com. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.